Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for this 19th episode of the series. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of white racial identity at our current historical juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? To help me unpack these questions and many more, I'm joined by a range of guests, all of whom have unique insights to bring to this discussion. Now, today I'm joined by a woman who founded her first organization, Youth Without Borders, at the age of just 16. She published her best-selling memoir, Yasmin's Story, with Penguin Random House at age 24, following up with her first novel for younger readers, You Must Be Layla, in 2019. The sequel, Listen, Layla, is out now in Australia and New Zealand and will be with the rest of us very soon. A writer, broadcaster, mechanical engineer, to name just some of her achievements, she was one of the 2020 LinkedIn changemakers and is a globally sought-after advisor on issues of social justice focused on the intersections of race, gender and faith. Please welcome Sudanese-Australian writer and award-winning social advocate Yasmin Abdelmajid. Yasmin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for that very kind introduction and for having me, Miriam. I'm really excited. Thank you. So first off, I have to ask you, how how are you? How is lockdown treating you? Lockdown, we're in lockdown three here for those of our listeners not in the UK. Um, how's lockdown three here in London working out for you? Well, Miriam, this morning I woke up and I thought to myself, I can't wait till the end of the day so that I can get back to sleep again. I just... <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> I think that, like, that thought just sums up the experience. I mean, look, it's, um, I'm, alhamdulillah, in, like, a much more fortunate position than many other people. And I'm also in a better position than I was in lockdown one. Lockdown one was a lot tougher in lots of ways, like, financially and materially and so on. But I just think that the the... The fact that it has gone on for so long that it didn't have to be this bad that I look to friends mm. around the world who are in very different positions because their leaders made different choices. Right. It just it just kind of um, it's about survival, I think. And I'm doing what I can to survive and not being too harsh on myself. I think that's that's how I'm getting through it. Yeah, I think that's really wise, actually. I think that's one of the big struggles of um, lockdown is knowing the tempo you have to kind of set for yourself um, and, and not being too hard if you're not able to keep up with the tempo you're used to having, which certainly isn't my case. Um, well, look, I, you obviously would have been looking at Australia, which I, I gather is already in the midst of having post-lockdown parties and... Um, right. yeah. <laughs> A whole, a whole different reality, right? It really is. It's really quite surreal. Um, it's like, and I, I tweeted something to this effect the other day because I was like, I get on my, I get on the phone with friends from Australia, and it feels like I'm talking to people in a different time, a different universe. Yeah. You know, they, they're going to parties and um, hanging out with each other and making plans, and like, yeah, there are lots of restrictions. And I know, like, for example, my hometown of Brisbane went into lockdown for, like, three days because they had one case, a community, one 
community transmission or something right and going for zero covid right mm, yeah 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 it feels like uh, part of the challenges and i i kind of realized that this was something that was getting under my skin i have no interest in returning to australia but i cannot deny that it's a better place to be in at this very point because it doesn't have covid like but you know that doesn't make me want to go there but i have to kind of like sit with that and be like oh i've chosen to be here in this place that has over a hundred thousand people like die from this disease and it's just it's kind of the strange cognitive dissonance where i'm like i still choose to be here um even though the place that i came from is doing a much better job that 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 could be a very damning indictment of Australia, but I feel I know we may come to more damning indictments um, as we proceed. Um, Mm -hmm. Look, I wanted to talk to you today about whiteness. Um, One, and I wouldn't be able to, you know, I'd be amiss if I didn't raise the issue um, of, you know, one of the issues that definitely brought you to my attention back in 2016 when you walked out of the Brisbane Writers' Festival during Lionel Shriver's keynote address. Um, For those who don't know about this incident, she had began by asking what you describe in a subsequent article as an interesting question. I think it is an interesting question. She said, what are fiction writers allowed to write given that they will never truly know another person's experience? Now, that's an enduringly important question even today in 2021. And you wrote in The Guardian at the time that rather than focus on the ultimate question around how we can know an experience we have not had, the argument became a tirade. You say it became about mocking those who ask people to seek permission to use their stories. It became a celebration of the unfettered exploitation of the experience of others under the guise of fiction. Um, I I won't make you repeat that because I've, I've, you know, (laughs) there's a brilliant article you've written, um, which anyone who wants to kind of read, I guess your response to that can can check out in, in The Guardian. But I'm really keen to hear how you might have answered that question because I sense that there is something about whiteness in how we answer that question do you agree yeah I think it's it's fascinating because I um my thoughts have developed from that you know the short walk to freedom out of that um talk and Mm. it's I've probably become a bit perhaps more nuanced or more specific in what I think about that ultimate question of what it is where we uh, fiction writers write and their responsibility perhaps but maybe if I was to come from the perspective of, of or looking at how whiteness intersects with this question I think what's fascinating is that whiteness has the assumption and presumption within it to be able to define what the experiences of others uh, or that is the gaze through which the experiences of others are filtered. Um, and even as even as a fiction writer who isn't white, I often find myself grappling with this question of, am I writing for an audience that has the same assumptions that I may have or is coming from a lens that I think they should be coming from? Or will, like, do I always take the gaze of whiteness as the, the gaze that I'm writing through? And if I choose not to, does that, am I like am I making the right choice or what is the does it mean that people will miss the meaning am I less impactful I think there's questions of intention and questions of how it lands with an audience and that's always what writers who are perhaps trying to grapple with this question of whiteness 
even in a fiction story for like young adults um are having to kind of face up against like mm. ultimately the the thing is if if all things were equal Mariam, anyone can write whatever they want but all things are not equal and right. all things have never been equal right and where i mean Edward Said who is you know a fave and everyone knows him for orientalism i think some of the work that i'm reading of his at the moment is around this idea of culture and imperialism and he really fascinatingly talks about how literature um is you know and i'm going to butcher his words is like a tool of of the imperial project yes and indeed yeah defining the other right exactly and that that was that was the um that was that's not something that has changed you know i think mm. that like okay imperialism doesn't perhaps operate in the same way that it did when you know before the independence movements of the 50s and 60s but cultural imperialism um and the way that whiteness is has the power or has the expectation that it can and will and should define the other and that is the truth rather than what somebody determines themselves to be or determines their story to be i think that hasn't really changed and and the publishing industry uh very much is trying to grapple with this at the moment but i don't even know sometimes if they realize that that is what's happening and so we get into these really boring conversations around free speech and i'm like it's not about free speech it's not about me dictating to every single writer what they can and can't do i'm not interested in doing that i'm interested in asking you to deeply consider your positionality in the world and ask yourself why is it that you think you're the best person to write this story why is it that you think you want to write this story is it like okay you want to write an an interesting different story well why cannibalize somebody else's um because like if it's just to serve you i mean ultimately it's for, like you you think that this is a very important story because because what like why do you, i don't know i just think that that folks yeah, tend that, to not yeah. ask themselves these questions and and then we and then we just also then get stories that are not very nuanced that are that are again through the lens of othering Mm. and we're in the same we're having the same conversation years and years and years on end yeah well that that's interesting because actually what I wanted to ask you was how much has actually changed since you wrote those words in 2016 there's a quote actually that I wanted uh, to pick up on in which you say the reality is that those from marginalized groups even today do not get the luxury of defining their own place in a norm that is profoundly white straight and often patriarchal um, we're speaking, obviously, in 2021. You've got two nonfiction books under your belt now. How how distant do those words seem or how relevant? So I think that there is some change, right? Um, we live in a world where books like mine are published and where, pardon me, there are there is more of a space for what people might consider or the publishing world terms as own voices stories. Mm. However, if you look at the example of the book American Dirt last year, for example, where there was a massive book deal for a woman who kind of pretended that a story was more her own than it was. Um, there was a massive backlash from the Latinx community. So for those who don't know, um, essentially it was, it was a book in the United States that was talking about the 
looking at a family who were undocumented migrants, I believe, from Mexico, I believe. And the woman who wrote it kind of, she was like, yeah, my partner's, my husband or whatever is an undocumented migrant. He was an undocumented migrant from Ireland, not from right. Mexico, Mexico, as like yeah. the implication was. And there was this massive backlash in the Latinx community because it was positioned as like the book to talk about the migrant experience. And people were like, why are you giving this white woman who doesn't have lived experience the um, the authority to write the book of the undocumented migrant experience? Massive backlash. And yet it still was incredibly successful. It mm. was like a bestseller. And so I think what's interesting is even though that the, there is more public pushback and you might get more support for saying, oh, this person you know, perhaps this isn't the best person to be flying the flag or to be seen as the representative for all, et cetera, et cetera. I think the structure hasn't shifted. We still mm. see um, books doing incredibly well, um, even if there is pub, uh, pushback from the communities they deem to represent. Um, mm -hmm. uh, authors will get together and like, you know, last year there was a big piece in Harper's I think it was Harper's Bazaar, I want to say, um, where all these writers signed the, an open letter talking about the importance of freedom of speech and blah, 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 blah. And so there's there's also a big establishment pushback against um, folks who are saying, well, actually, there's got to be, um, we've got to be responsible, perhaps, for the fictions that we create in our work. Um, so, I mean... Maybe it's two steps forward and one step back or one step mm. forward and two steps back. I'm not it, sure. It's interesting because I think that, yeah, it sounds like, you know, there's a, a kind of a tug, tug of war within um, the literary world. And I mean, I um, was a judge on the Bailey Gifford Prize last year. And one of the things that struck me um, judging uh, a book um, prize was the extent to which certain norms exist you know I'm um, you know <laughs> walking into uh, a world in which I'm, I'm realizing that there are certain norms that exist mm. in terms of what's considered literature what's considered high mm. literature uh, in fact what's considered someone you know who's considered someone who's allowed to judge literature mm. um uh caveat definitely not everyone thought that was me and um, that's so interesting yeah and so even on a book prize judging panel there's an awareness of um you know for me I mean my background as a sociolo sociologist political scientist is is kind of studying the norms the unspoken norms that exist in society and so it was very clear to me that there were um, there was a rule book, you know, to, to kind of refer to what Bourdieu, these kind of unspoken mm. rules that exist. Um, and that if you weren't aware of them or you weren't playing to them, then you're almost unintelligible in that mm. setting. Um, so, I, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I think that authors that are coming from outside of what we might call the establishment, um, which has been uh, very white in multiple ways, uh, would would struggle to be heard on their own terms because it's a language, and I don't just mean the words, that hasn't yet been recognised on its own terms. I think that struggle is one I've, I've personally seen firsthand. But anyway, enough enough about me. Um, no, I want to ask you questions, but I get... I oh, get dear. <laughs> I'm so, so curious. <laughs> Turn Go the on. tables. Well, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, from your... You know, if you're looking at what these norms are, were there ones that were particular to, the, say, the publishing world that were different from other spaces that you'd been in? 
Um, was that surprising? Yes, I think what I found was a traditionalism um, mm. which was very uh, deeply grounded as the um, the ultimate paradigm for great literature. And, you know, I'm walking into the room as a um, literature rebel in a sense because I found, a, well, I'm not going to comment. I, I find uh, in general a lot of um, what can, gets called great literature uh, to often be a, a kind of quite dull regurgitation of stories that we've heard a million times. Hmm. And I um, am thirsty always for new uh, perspectives on the world. Um, and, and your, you know, subjectivities aren't um, racially defined, obviously, but obviously people who do have uh, different experiences of the world to the white norm in, in the UK, for example, will um, bring a perspective that is usually refreshing if it doesn't seek to kowtow to those norms. Um, totally. Yeah, and, that, and that I felt was uh, missing and when it was present, often inaudible. Um, I think that's... That's such a um, well-noticed. Uh, I think. I think it's no. I think it's it's really like you've put it really well. It is. There's this traditionalism, almost a conservatism in a in an industry that purports to be progressive. Yes. Uh, which I think there's also that kind of like double think of like where the liberal progressives and where the ones that are not. Um, you know, that, I mean, literature is about new worlds, is about curiosity. It should be about, like, for me, that's the, the idea of books was never about traditionalism. I grew up with books as, as portals into different ways of seeing the world. Yeah. Um, and so it's so fascinating to kind of have this, this potential for it to be something. And then once you get into what is great and what is, worthy um there are such strict rules around that and I mean I I would be I think similar to you in that I, I really struggle with um and and there's a lot of then I don't even know if it, if I would call it imposter syndrome but mm. there's this sense of knowing that what I do and what I'm best at is not what is rewarded yes um, I completely so understand yeah. that yeah so it's not imposter syndrome it's knowing that I'm not the right fit and that's not my fault but what am I going to do about it? Yeah. And um, actually, that's a really um, important point maybe for us to raise around whiteness, because when we talk about structures, because obviously the conversation around whiteness is primarily one around structures, then the institutions that have uh, been created to award prizes, which have been created to award recognition, which ultimately, let's talk about what those awards, what that recognition are, their cultural capital, aren't they, mm -hmm. which translates in society as two things, material power, money, but also social power, right, mm -hmm. in, the, in, in the recognition, in the speech, in your ability to be heard beyond what you might have been prior to that. And once you start to notice that the uh, prize awarding institutions, and this is true across different fields in my experience, um, are indebted to a particular uh, traditionalism, a particular vision of what great, whatever it may be, filmmaking, writing, um, singing might be, um, then, then you realise that actually sometimes 
um, the best pieces of creative work are not the ones getting recognized. Mm. And this was a big awakening for me personally as an adult, because I'd, I'd thirsty grown up with a mythology that, you know, if it was great work, it would get awards, but then it would get an award. You know, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and then, I mean, the big one for me was when I re- realized that Caesar's album, you know, Control, which was probably one of the best albums of the century um received zero um mm. wins and it was like okay fine we if if that if an album like that can drop and not receive any awards um something's not right be, well something's not right you know and um and something tells you that there are some rules i mean, I mean there, there have been artists over the years who raised questions over how award ceremonies are constructed who are the gatekeepers allowed to determine what constitutes high culture what is high culture? Who defines high culture? Who has defined high culture historically? And how's that, has the makeup of those groups really changed, I guess, is, yeah. um, is the real question, there's, you know? There's a story that I heard recently, and I have not fact-checked this, but I think it's pretty fascinating and compelling. Um, so the studio bosses in Hollywood created, I'm pretty sure it was the studio bosses, created the Oscars um, essentially so that the really powerful actors like wouldn't get together and unionize. The idea was that like they, they were like, how do we how do we retain power so that the actors rather than turning on us, they turn on each other? And the idea wow. of the Oscars I just thought it was it was a story in um in the script notes podcast, which is a, a screenwriting podcast, and they're the the guys who um run it are professionals, Hollywood professionals. And when I heard this, I was like that's so fascinating because you would never yeah. think of an award ceremony like the Oscars as something that was about setting the artists up to compete against each other for like a, for for something that is given value and as you say monetary and social capital but mm-hmm. it makes total sense well and then so does then Oscars so white right because if this mm-hmm. has been designed as kind of actually a form of social disempowerment mm-hmm. <laughs> disguised as an award ceremony then um you know it's never going to recognize the works of art that truly and I think there have been you know some incredible uh, pieces of film series that have uh, really catapulted the cultural conversation around racism around um, what what you know in particular what America stands for I mean I think the African-American community I always look at them as such a huge inspiration as an example of a community that has kind of um, despite all the odds uh, literally mm. being at the forefront of America's cultural output like literally mm. what is American cultural output without African-Americans yeah. it's I mean you know if we're honest about exactly it, um, yeah and, and that's despite all the odds. So imagine if this was a community that was actually, right. you know, given an equal starting point um, or standing other, point, as it were. 100%. And I think I think the point that you make about whiteness never actually being able to reward what, what ultimately wishes for its... Um, dismantling yeah dismantling Mm. I was gonna say demise and I was like that's I'm not sure (laughs) if that's the correct phrase well well, either works yeah either works I think yeah the other I mean like and this might be familiar to you as well I've been so I'm um moving I got this amazing opportunity to to do a writer's residency in Paris um this year which I'm really I'm hopefully going to be able to get in the the borders depending inshallah but what's been really interesting yeah yeah what's been fascinating is I've been trying to learn French and 
part of the the process of learning French is being introduced to what is considered like French culture and (laughs) there is such like if we want to talk about whiteness and its relationship with because I think often we talk about it in an Anglo American context but yes. it's fast it's it's so much more European mm. in and when you look at France's relationship with with its former colonies and if you look at any stories that are told in the language of French from the perspective of the Algerians for example like the Algerian independence movement is fascinating or or like the West African um, French speaking francophone countries and and how their experience in a place like Paris is completely different to the you know the romantic stories of the city of love I just Emily think in Paris the, exactly exactly yeah. um and so I think it's fascinating how um even it like whiteness doesn't only just define the other it defines itself as something that is um above reproach and by by calling it high art or by calling it high literature or by calling it whatever by elevating it um, it then rarefies it in a way that um, protects it yeah. from critique. Yeah, it, it's like a self-referential. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm the best because I said so. And yeah. I get to define the norms of what everything else is because I've got the power to set them, which, you know, I think is ultimately what, you know, having done this um, podcast now um, uh, for a few years now, that the, the idea is like the centering of white experience mm. is the epitome of, you know, human, you know, thought, achievement, mm-hmm. you know, all of it, everything is epitomized um, by the achievements primarily of white Europe, I would say. Um, And it subsumes everything, right? It also takes Mm. anything else and says, oh, now it's ours. Mm, absorbs it on its own terms I think mm-hmm. is the, the 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 interesting thing and I think you know we I mean we could talk about quite a few things on that I'd love to pick apart Lupin sometime because oh the God. series on Netflix is um uh, being being kind of heralded as sort of uh, one of the great outputs of um French uh, TV but I think there's there's a lot to pull apart um mm-hmm. in the series um particularly in terms of the the dynamic the racial dynamics underpinning mm-hmm. it but, but 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 I would like to um push you before we get to that a little bit on um uh just your you know I one of the ways in which I uh, came to kind of learn about whiteness as a term as a a way of looking at the question of racism was through um some certain authors I've always admired Bell Hooks Mm. in particular writing about her experience of uh whiteness growing up and what whiteness looked looked and felt like and even smelt like you know what what Mm. was and so I'm just um as someone who's grown up you know you grew up in Australia but now you're living in the UK I'm just really curious to hear um what whiteness looks like to you and how different that whiteness has looked like in Australia compared to here in the UK if at all oh that's such a good question thank you um (laughs) (laughs) makes me I'm I'm pondering I think like whiteness whiteness to me in Australia was invisibilized to the point that I couldn't tell it was there until I left. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a country built on like the the attempted genocide of an entire peoples, the oldest people, you know, the oldest continuous living civilization in the world. And mm-hmm. that was a history that was so like uh, intentionally 
misconstrued and undertaught and hidden from you know someone like me who's a first generation migrant that I didn't understand I didn't con- I could never have conceived of Australia being a black country but ultimately it it had been until it was declared terra nullius um by the Brits which essentially means a land of like an Incredible. uninhabited land mm. right and so essentially the the whiteness in Australia is not only what I found fascinating I remember reading this um like thesis which said that Australia initially in the minds of the Brits who settled colonized um it was the place for them to create the perfect white society right like that was its intention Mm. for the land and then in the like when it federated in the 19 in 1901 and post 1901 they were like okay we can't quite like we can't quite say it's the perfect white society, but let's say that perfection is whiteness here. And so um, it didn't it didn't become the kind of because you had the white Australia policies and so on, which meant that only people of European descent could to move to Australia. And so, I mean, even the South African apartheid folk looked at Australia with admiration. Right. Like Eek. it was like, right, right, right. Like, and then the, the, the white Afrikaners who were like, oh, in South Africa, it's getting a bit too like integrated. We're going to leave. They all went to Australia. So oh, Australia. Wow. Yeah. It's a place where whiteness as the aspiration, as the norm, as the benchmark, as the gaze, as the lens. That is. That is. um it, it is it, it is the it's the yeah it's it's like all encompassing yeah and it's so all encompassing that i didn't even realize that it could be different until i moved until i left the country mm. um i don't even know and i think like you know you've had ruby hammond on your show before yeah. someone like ruby talking about whiteness the way she does is in, in australia is incredible because um because a, the country's so hostile, so hostile to yeah, any... Yeah, she's had, she's had mm. some tough responses, huh? Well, yeah. some of you, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, I think what she, what is really incredible about what she's done is she's given it language. And I think that was something that I didn't have when I was growing up. I didn't have language mm. for understanding why, you know, I was never going to be, like people were like oh you could be you could be a politician you could be prime minister I was like me no and I know and I and I kind of I wasn't saying that from a place of false modesty I was saying it from a place of someone like me could never and but I didn't have language for why that would be um I just had a sense mm. and experience and understanding of what it meant um and you know it's quite boring and banal to say that there's two different types of being in Australia or whatever but when your entire country it's very DNA is about whiteness is about creating a society where whiteness is the aspiration, the perfection, the benchmark, like it is very difficult to dismantle that. And the question becomes, and I don't have, I don't necessarily know the answer to this is if your institution was built with this value, was built with this DNA, can it ever be reformed? Um, Yes, this is a vital question because I think entire societies obviously have been created. Uh, You know, our our industrial revolution here in the UK came off the back of 
what resources they were the mm-hmm. colonial exploitation and enslavement of uh, you know primarily africans so yeah. um that wealth that construction of our society that the wealth we enjoy in the global north today did not come out of the coal mine coal mines of sheffield mm-hmm. and you know unless um it's and it, and i and i sometimes wonder if you know just the recognition of that historical injustice um, itself, which I think at the moment seems to be the conversation that sort of stops at that. Whereas, mm. you know, unless we actually go the step further and say, okay, it created um, a global disequilibrium, dis- dis- right? Mm. It created a an imbalance, we, and and that imbalance has had uh, you know knock-on infe- effects for generations now on other people's lives. Um, on our lives in the positive, wealthier sense and in other people's lives in the poverty and struggle and illness mm. and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, as you say, can we, can that ever be unpicked, do you think? I mean, can you ever um, dismantle the whiteness of a society that has built its wealth off exploitation and slavery? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think, I think about my like again my positionality is that my parents left the the global south um and took me as a baby and brought me up in the global north in as a as a direct result of the colonial like the coup in sudan of in 1989 you can make a direct link between it and and the colonial project because ultimately his whole position was anti-colonial and anti-imperialist and he like which you know, we can have a whole different conversation about that, but the point is, is about that, how that went. Yeah, right. We, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If 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 Sudan had never been colonized, I would never have had to leave, right? Um, and and so like, I feel entitled to, um, to the wealth of the global north because I think it is as a result of what was done to the place that I was born but that doesn't fix things at a structural level. Like I, I have a right. sense of how to make sense of the world as an individual. I don't necessarily know what it looks like because the question is if we dismantle whiteness, what do we replace it with? Because I don't think any kind of racial superiority is the way to go. I'm not, ne- I'm not somebody that says, well, we need to, to replace white supremacy with a different type of racial supremacy. I think, okay, let's, what, what, what are the values that we can bring people together around i mean i would say justice and things like this but what does that actually look like what is what is reparations look like what does it mean and you know it's not so simple like look at you know sudan is a place that has really struggled because we have had generations of people leave the country and so you've got this massive brain drain Mm. um which i'm a part of um but it's not so easy to go back my friends my cousins who have gone back find well it, they they return as different people and the country they left is different and of so course. it's i think i think what we're what we're looking at is well colonization and imperialism happened over centuries and was a very specific project so the the decolonizing and the push against imperialism will take decades and centuries and we are we are only in the first half century of that really um, or, yeah, you know, true. in the second half, of, like Sudan, I think 1956. So mm. we've had 70 years ish. So yeah. we're just kind of getting our heads around. What does it mean to, to put our houses back together? Um, 
And I think it makes it more challenging that we're in a globalized world where there's so much context context collapse because, you know, people like myself, for example, who is Sudanese born, but brought up in Australia and influenced by the United States and the UK and so on. My references are not Sudanese. My references are the civil rights movement in the US. That's a different Mm. context. How do I, how do I find the right way of bringing the context, the globalized contexts into a local, um, into a local conversation, something that actually works for the place that I'm in. I think it's tricky because it's so easy to sometimes get caught up in these internationalized conversations which perhaps lose its relevance when we get to the day-to-day mm. I don't know if that makes sense no it does I mean I mean I think the the that's a real struggle for the conversation on racial equality more generally right which is um, even in the midst of um, you know the Black Lives Matter movement in America which then you know was taken up in, in the UK in France and various other parts of the world there was still a sense that you know, um, even if we achieve some kind of um, <laughs> ideal, ideal uh, equality for black communities in these parts of the world, are we saying black lives matter in the West? Is it Western mm-hmm. black lives matter? Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Does, does it stop at the global north? And if it doesn't, then is, it, is this a much bigger, you know, movement with aspirations to create equality on a global scale? Right. But but it, but if we do, you know, that conversation then becomes almost like unwieldy and I feel that Mm. many of us then struggle to sort of conceptualize how you move forward with that I mean one example and I you know because I've seen that you've obviously been invested in um, diversity work today I mean I spotted on your uh, on your website which is beautiful by the way um, (laughs) several um, videos which people should go and take a look at what one of them was on um, unconscious bias that you did for LinkedIn Um, And I mean, I wanted to ask you about your work within organizations um, to do with issues of diversity, because a lot of people, a lot of corporations today are are asking for, um, you know, input when it comes to Mm -hmm. uh, diversifying their workforce. Um, I mean, firstly, I guess maybe for people who don't know, what is unconscious bias and and do you think it can be beaten? So... Unconscious bias at a very kind of definitional term, I, like cognitive biases are the shortcuts that our brains make with the information that comes into our brains, right? So we get 11 million pieces of information at any given point and our brain processes like 40 at a time. Mm. And so we make shortcuts. And some of those shortcuts are useful and kind of about survival. You know, we see the color red, we think danger. But quite often those shortcuts are reflections of norms and structures that are un- not useful and in fact actually harmful so the, the the norms and stereotypes that we might have around women around people of color around people of different religions and so on and so on and quite often these shortcuts are not things that we have gone out and decided for ourselves they're just messages we've absorbed from the world around us and so there's kind of two parts to the conversation around unconscious bias i think and i think it's important to recognize that a, talking about bias is not going to fix the problem. We're not going to sort out racial inequality by unconscious bias talks and training, right? And, and I think mm-hmm. it's really important that I make that clear because I sort of, I helped popularize the term when I did a TED talk on it and like in 20, it came out in 2015 and mm-hmm. it was like people were like, oh my God, 
this is an amazing thing because it means that I don't have to feel so bad about <laughs> the, you know, about the biases that I have because they're unconscious, right? And I'm like, well, yes and no. First is that like, okay, I, what I'm saying to you is that you have an intention and perhaps your actions or the way that you operate or whatever is reflecting a norm or a bias that is different to your intention, right? And so part of this is about making people aware that their intention is not always their impact and how to bring people in alignment. Mm. However, um, a lot of structural biases are not accidental, are not unconscious. They're conscious. When, you know, in the systems and structures, the biases that exist are often consciously there because they reflect a power structure, a system or whatever. And so it's important to be like what happens at the individual level is different to what is happening at a structural and institutional level. And we can't take the same approach to what you might say is, okay, and the people that created this process, they intended for it to be fair and just, but because of their personal biases, it wasn't, or their job is now to go back and to figure out how to, you know, de-bias that process or, or find or change it so that it actually gets the outcome that they want. I think that it is impossible for us to go through the world without bias. And um, the trick is to, ha- to align your biases with the values that you believe in or that you say that you believe in. Um, mm. And that is a process of constantly interrogating the assumptions that we have. That's a process of checking ourselves. That's a process of being open to the fact that we might make mistakes. Um, but it's also an acknowledgement of the fact that the, we're human. And as a single person, I can't, I can't do everything. And so if I want to have an organization that doesn't like reinforce pre-existing or societal norms, the way to do that is to just also have people with different experiences in positions of power at like with a critical mass. So I don't want just like one woman of color and one person with a disability and one person with a different sexuality. You need to have enough people from all different, from all the kind of like various historically marginalized communities that you think need to be given more power within positions of power. So they themselves are able to do part of that work they themselves are able to become part of the dna of the institution and that's how things change hmm. and 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 so in that sense do you think that the uh, push towards diversity um and representation which i think a lot of corporations you know whether it's sincere or not um can truly have a meaningful impact on um starting to dismantle uh, whiteness within our society? Um, I think that there have been diversity programs for as long as there have been anti-discrimination laws. And a lot of them in the countries that we, you know, in the US, in the UK and so on, they were like late 60s, early 70s um, legislation oh, laws. Uh, and since then, there have been diversity programs and movements and billions of dollars sunk into this industry and has the needle changed that much I think the proof is in the pudding I think that Mm. like what's what I try to do is I think what I tried to do initially when I was first kind of like starting out was like I was like oh let me change from within um I'm not sure that works for me I think what I now like to do is go in and say hey 
you need to think about these things and you need to think about this not just it's not just about representation it's not just it's about shifting power um and i have the ability to go in have that really hard conversation give the space for the people within that company who think they can make a difference um and hope that they're able to to make like actual structural change or institutional change within their organizations i don't want to say that it's impossible because i think that there are a handful of companies that are doing quite good work but i think that like it's incredibly you have you have to want it more than anything else you have mm. to want it as much as you want to make money you have to want it as much as you want like you know it's got to be your it's got to be a singular focus that you are willing to fire people for that you are willing to have people make pay consequences for but people are not generally there yet they're not the mm. not comfortable enough with saying that our push towards racial just our push to challenge whiteness is as important as making money it's just it's too scary for most people and so they mm. they don't have the courage to do it but it's possible it's not actually rocket science yeah and i mean i guess the question is as whilst we stand at the altar of capitalism which does deify capital which deifies you know money profits um can we ever substitute that deity for another set of values which would not require um what i guess i i would refer to as like the ideological lubricant of racism mm -hmm. to justify um, the way in which it operates. I mean, I was going to mention the, um, you probably remember this a few years back when Colin Kaepernick's uh, ad mm. for Nike came out. Mm. Um, and a lot of people at that time thought it was, a, you know, a very radical move. Obviously, for those who don't know, uh, Colin Kaepernick's an American football player. Well, he hasn't actually played football for many years now because after he took a knee uh, during the anthem at one of the games as part of his uh, protest um, um, as part of BLM, Black Lives Matter. Um, he lost his contract um, and, uh, and, and, as I said, hasn't played since. But at the time, many, point, many people pointed out that uh, Nike um, has an issue when it comes to worker living wages and unionization um, of its workforce. There's a, a, a report called the Ethical Fashion Report, which monitors company practices, um, which gave Nike a very low score. And, and so I guess when I'm looking at a lot of the um, push towards diversity today, I'm really wondering whether... Um, you know, when you have someone like Colin Kaepernick join your campaign, are we also then, uh, you know, going to, as much as we're really glad that Colin's finally getting paid because, you know, mm. he's made enough sacrifices, he deserves a check. But um, but at the same time, you know, um, whose back is the check coming off? Mm. Um, is this other people of colour who are having to suffer? And are we able, uh, when... Uh, people who are seeking to dismantling whiteness, whatever their own um, identity, uh, join an organization, are we actually saying to them that actually you join and you are going to tell your employers, I'm actually going to make us less profitable because mm. profit is no longer the objective? <laughs> yeah, it's super tough, right? I think it's, it's, as you say, and you rightly bring up, capitalism and you know the neoliberal version of it that we currently find ourselves um living under i think it's also worth pointing out that whiteness is a product of wanting to create capture 
um, hold on to more capital. Like the idea of whiteness was created in order to create a blackness and that blackness was used to essentially decide that a whole bunch of people were considered property instead of of human beings that had um, rights and dignity and so on. So you cannot separate whiteness from profit and from exploitation and from wanting to to hold on to capital. Um, and I and I think it's it's challenging, partly because I I don't I struggle to reconcile the individual responsibility with the enormous challenge of living as a um, in a world where you're trying to dismantle whiteness, but mm. also trying to survive. You know, mm. um, because I think that it's it is such an overwhelming, all encompassing system. Um, that all we can do and perhaps you know perhaps this is me and my you know older age kind of being like it would be great to create a commune and or like like bun everything and 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 create a parallel system but but the reality is um we have to figure out the like least harmful ways of going through the world as individuals and then find how we collectivize, how we organize. I think I'm more and more interested these days in how we organize against things like systems and structures like whiteness, because its power is also in dividing us. Its power Mm. is also in saying some of you are more proximate to us and we're going to give you a bit more power. And so you're going to be less interested in this. Like, you know, it's it's survived for so long because it's very adaptable. It knows Mm. how to, to create the, the the just the right amount of division just the the right amount of exploitation so that people don't turn against it completely right and so I guess the question that I'm thinking about and I don't have the answer to at the moment is what does it look like to organize against whiteness what does it look like to dismantle this and to also to understand that you know what it's it sucks that that Colin Kaepernick was able to be bought by Nike and like but it's okay I'm not going like not that it's okay, but I will still have him under the same tent that I'm fighting in because course, we yeah. need that, right? And like, and everyone makes different choices, and and I'm not going to agree with everyone's choices, and people probably don't agree with all of my choices, but I think no mine, yes, <laughs> right. If if our focus is to to like, if we are able to focus on the thing that we're trying to dismantle and on what we want to replace that with, then we can have compassion for each other and the choices that we make to survive in this world. Yeah. Um, and that's hopefully important. move forward. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And I think one of the reasons that, you know, in coming into the, convers- the anti-racism conversation with a focus on whiteness for me was about also recognising that Um, Otherwise, we are expecting all of the sacrifices, which are often material sacrifices Mm -hmm. because we live in a capitalist world, to be taken on the chin by the very same communities who have already been experiencing the the, the short straw uh, because of that very system. So it's like the system uh, screws people of color over and then the fight against the system requires sacrifices which will also uh, materially speaking place them in a position you know position of power that is uh, lesser and consequently potentially then just reinforce it so it has to be something that um, you know, and I think this is maybe the hard sell of dismantling whiteness is there is a, there is a part of it for me, at least, that says, you know, um, those of us in, in the global north, um, 
have benefited from a system mm. um, that has been skewed in our favor and uh, mm. not equally, uh, uh, much more so for some than others. But but reestablishing a balance, if we're serious about that, does mean uh, returning to some kind of a balance, which means ceding some mm. of what mm. we have to others. Um, and I don't know that we have the um, ideological tools, the, um, mm. I guess, the, the value references. Um, I, I say this in our societies, I think as, um, you know, in a slight side topic, and as, as Muslims, I think we do mm. have the, that ethos, actually, within our faith. Um, both Yasmin and I are, are Muslims, so I can speak um, mm. to, to a shared sense, I think, of um, uh, equality as something not being defined by material principles, mm. you know, being defined as something that will um, you know, actually good deeds. You know, we have a faith in which the idea is uh, the person who does the most good deeds, the person who is at the uh, most knowledgeable about faith and um, closest to God, that's the person of highest ranking. And mm. um, they, they could be the cleaner at the mosque, just like they might be the CEO of a huge company. Um, they're, you know, so it, but, but we are enmeshed in a system in which mm. the, the very value we attribute to people is still based on their financial worth, which is why everyone wants to be a billionaire. Um, yeah. But that, <laughs> that could take us into a, a slightly different conversation, which I know you and I have touched on before. Um, but listen, let, let's talk about your book, Listen, Layla, which is a sequel to your book, You Must Be Layla. Tell me, how did the series come about? And I guess more specifically, why did you feel compelled to write these stories? Mm, thank you. And just before I answer that, I want to kind of like echo what you just said, because I think the older the older I get and the more I think about these things, the more I come back to my faith system, come back to the framework that Islam provides mm. um, and the values in which or the values that it um, holds, because I think there is a universality in that and um, a possibility that it holds that I find that I keep wanting to bring into all the different parts of work that I do yeah um, and you know nice little segue and also the writing that I do whatever age group that's in so right I... <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> yes yeah very smooth um I had never considered writing fiction before um and I but I had always kind of worked with young people whether through Youth Without Borders or through um when I was after I wrote my first book which was a memoir a I kind of did a lot of stuff with schools and my publishers saw that I sort of spoke really well with kids and so on. They were like, oh, would you be interested in writing a middle grade or a young adult fiction? And I didn't know if I could do it, to be honest. Um, I had never been very good at like making up stories that weren't related to things that were real. Um, mm -hmm. I hear that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's a lot happening in the world. Why do we right. have to make things up? Like, <laughs> um, but I think two things compelled me. One was that I, all the books that changed my life, um, like the main books that changed my life were books that I read as like a 12, 13 year old. Like that age was mm. formative um, in terms of like opening me up to different possibilities in helping me figure out a sense of who I was. And I think, you know, the first um, book with the first book in English in like a Western world with a, with a Muslim woman protagonist I think um, as far as I know it was Randa Abdel Fattah's Does My Head Look Big In This and that came out in what I read 2000 that, yeah. right like yeah. all of us read it because it was yeah. the only one it was the was, only one yes and it was like what 2004 or 5 like I was like 15 or something when that came out mm -hmm. 
and I and you know I was I loved the fact that it was there but I also wished that it was more related to my world like I wanted it to be even more you know I wanted it to reflect the Sudanese Australian experience I wanted to um I like I, I just wished I could see myself in the books right and and that's the second thing is I I just I'm really passionate about and it's not about representation it's about something different. It's about inserting ourselves into the story of a society. It's mm-hmm. about carving out our space. We are here, right? Mm-hmm. And and we define who we are as a society by the myths that we, you know, Nasreen's Malik, Nasreen Malik's book, that, um, We Need New Myths, I think is yes. fantastic in this space because she talks about the myths that create a society and the myths that are that define the societies that I have grown up in and that I live in are myths centered on whiteness, are myths that have whiteness as its as its constant norm and benchmark. And I was just like, I that's not the world that I know. That's not the world that I like, you know, my private world with me and my family, that's, you know, it was not a world where whiteness was the aspiration. Um, mm. And I wanted to bring that to to the world and I wanted to bring that to kids and, and you know and listen Layla is quite different from the first book the first book you know Layla gets a scholarship to a fancy private school and she ends up like um having a fight with with this bully who's racist and Islamophobic and he turns out to be the chairman's son and so she, she kind of has to wow. like prove her worth right to stay at the school um and to keep her scholarship by winning the robotics competition right that's the kind mm. of that's the setup for that yeah. um but the second book is actually she then goes back to Sudan with her family because her grandmother's sick and she kind of gets involved in the revolution in Sudan. And like, you know, so it's much more. Oh, wow. Yeah. It kind of tackles a lot. And she's 14. She doesn't really understand what freedom and justice and the civilian government means, but she's fighting for it nonetheless. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's like revolution. And the stories of fighting against oppressive governments were a part of my teenage years, right? Like they're not, even though I grew up in Australia, um, they were a part of my story. And I wanted to to reflect that in in the the books that kids get access to, and in the stories that become part of who they are, or, mm. or of of you know what is what is the norm, what is the aspiration, what is the possibility. So yeah. yeah. Oh wow! And and so, generally speaking, when you've um, presented the books in schools, uh, how do young people react to these stories? Because I sense we're also, uh, when we talk about kind of the challenging of whiteness, more and more stories like this one you've just written are becoming no longer just niche right Mm -hmm. this isn't just a book that just hijabis will buy which I think you know does my head look big in this probably at that time was still Mm -hmm. a book that you know most of us who were wore a headscarf at the time were were like yes this is finally one for us but (laughs) but I don't know how many people who don't actually read the book um, but it but it seems to me that with the younger generation, there are more and more stories that um, previously would have been considered niche, mm. um, uh, which are now read by much wider audiences. I mean, how have you experienced that? How how have the young people reacted? Yeah, I definitely think that there's a generational shift that's really fascinating, partly because these kids have grown up in a in a much more globalized world than we have, and with access. Right. A native access to to digital media and mm. social media in a way that like means that their bubble is no longer just the bubble of you know their local neighborhood and so there is an appetite 
for stories that are not just reflective of their own personal experience. I, I find that the, the readership is still quite gendered. Like it still tends to be girls will read girl or girls will be pointed to characters that are also girls and, mm. um, and, you know, boys and other genders will kind of be, everyone will be pointed in different directions that way. But certainly from a racial point of view, there's a lot more kind of appetite. And from a faith perspective, there's a lot more appetite for um, folks who don't share um, Layla's experience to read those books and I get the most wonderful kind of messages from from young readers about it and stuff so I also Aww. think that like they like um, like Layla's not a victim of her circumstance um, and you know and like she definitely goes through rough things but um, she's not victimized by them or or at least I try not to present her as only defined by the the bad things that happened to her and I think that's something that's really important as well mm, yeah no of course and and so for anyone who would like to get a hold of your book I always try and um, give our listeners an indication of where they can get it that perhaps might not be Amazon not saying you shouldn't get yes, anything at no, Amazon no, no. but maybe I'm there are very other places anti-Amazon I might <laughs> refuse to have anything at Amazon even come near my house um, so I'm all for that um, you can, if you're in Australia or New Zealand, you can get it um, on the Penguin website or any bookshops. Or if you're international, you can get on my website, yasmeenam.com. Um, and I'm selling a limited stock of signed books from there. Fantastic. All right. And so um, before we uh, end the session, I just would go up my quick fire round for you. Um, here we go. What is your definition of whiteness? Um Whiteness is a construct that um, defines itself not through melanin or lack of, but through its um, access and control of um, power globally, geopolitically, capitally, um, and exists based on exclusion. Wow, nice. Thank you. Um, is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is the universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? I'm not a fan of the universalist kind of way of thinking. I think there's a lot of value in difference. I think part of the problem is that the difference that we value diff like uh, different things or different people or different norms differently. But difference in itself is not inherent. I always think of this ayin the Quran, which is, you know, we have made you into nations and tribes so that you can, you may know one another. I think there's right. value in being nations and tribes and and getting to know one another. Um, mm. I think it, I think I constantly, I'm writing a book about anti-racism for children at the moment, for nine to 10 year olds, um, mm. which hasn't been um, formally announced, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, and it's interesting to try to talk to kids about the fact that race was a was constructed for a specific reason um, right. and that in itself it's not essential so I think maybe one day we might get to a world where race is not essential to the way that we divide the world because um, it was never essential to begin with right. but we're way 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 <laughs> far from that. Mm. Um, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I think it has a place. I think it definitely has. A, I mean, we can't not speak about it. Um, I think that my personal um, challenge to myself is to try to not center it in all of my work um, and to 
to exercise the muscle of um, working around frameworks that acknowledge whiteness, but not lend it more power, mm. I think, through um, through my work, because I think part of the power it gets is by being, is by us also sometimes speaking about it as if it's this thing that can't actually be dismantled, mm. so, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and what, final one, what is a single and most important piece of advice you would give to anyone invested in challenging whiteness? I mean, this may sound unusual but like be kind to yourself through this process um because it um it is exhausting um it is not work that will be finished in your lifetime um you are simply passing the baton on we are all passing we're all taking the baton from one generation and passing it to another and doing what we can with the time that we have but don't feel like the world is on your shoulders and don't feel like everything you have that you kind of, and, and you know, this kind of, this is with dismantling whiteness in any other kind of social justice work. I think we take so much on, but we also have to be able to look after ourselves um, because if dismantling whiteness takes all the joy from us and all of our strength, then it's kind of also winning still. Mm. Very, very important point. Thank you so much for that, Yasmin. Uh, I really, really appreciate all of your insights and I'm sure all of our listeners do too. Thank you to all of our listeners also for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. <laughs>